As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to episode 509 with my guest, Gabby Hanna. Uh, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I'm a jackass. Professional, but I am a jackass, not a therapist. And this show is meant to help us with all the bullshit rattling around in our, in our heads. And God knows I got a lot of that bullshit. I just got a virtual reality uh, headset holy shit <laughs> it is a brave new world out there ladies and gentlemen i i'm not obsessed with it yet but um i'm shocked at how queasy i am for stuff that's really intense in virtual reality things that i would have been okay with playing a game you know a first person shooter game on my computer no problem can be as gory and graphic as hell but boy with that headset uh there's one game that i downloaded and i played it for five minutes and i could not handle it because it was it was terrifying just oh my god i would not fare well in in real war uh today's episode we're gonna read some surveys about people's experiences in psych wards and uh and some other stuff uh as well but um i want to read speaking of psych ward experiences i want to read something from uh that survey filled out by a woman who calls herself lovey mixed sex addiction and she was hospitalized for depression and ptsd uh, I spent two months in a psychiatric hospital. At that time, I didn't fully grasp that I was struggling with love and sex addiction, even though at that point I had never been single for longer than six months in my life. My favorite were men that were emotionally unavailable or in any other form unavailable so I could fix them while at the same time knowing that we could never be truly intimate. That's the sweet spot. In comes Danny name modified by the editors, a fellow patient, father of a three-year-old girl and in a relationship. It took me two weeks to get him out of that relationship and into my pants. Honestly, psych wards are not doing themselves a favor 
a favor forbidding relationships between clients because that doesn't make it hotter at all. The best part was that I knew I would leave the country by the end of my time in the hospital, so there wasn't even the illusion of any potential relationship for the future. But to be honest, it was so much more than sex, since we could bond over the wreckage that were our lives at that time. It's such an addictive connection to be together on a sinking ship, knowing that this can only go down, but at least we are in it together. I'm now in a committed relationship with the most wonderful boyfriend who supports me without being codependent. It's the best relationship I've ever been in, but there are days when the addict in me screams for a little high and wants to text Danny or any of the others for fun. Learning to love and accept that part of me at the moment, even though I'm secretly afraid, she'll get me into trouble. Wow, thank you for that. I know what it's like to trauma bond with somebody, and it is it is a high, but man, it's... It's like doing ecstasy, and when that part of it is over, you are left with such an empty, confused feeling. We are sponsored today by the online therapy provider, BetterHelp.com. I've been using it for a couple of years, and uh, I get so much out of it, and I love not having to leave my house to do it. It's, it's, it's just the best. I mean, now is obviously a great time to check out online therapy. Uh, they have tons of counselors, uh, and, and for people that live in the in the sticks or in smaller towns, uh, there's a good chance you're going to find the expertise in a counselor that they pair you with that you wouldn't be able to find locally. So uh, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. And then you can fill out a questionnaire, and if they feel they have a counselor that is a good match for you, they'll pair you up with one. Um, BetterHelp uh, satisfies all legal requirements in all 50 states, and uh, it's actually available worldwide now. So uh, check it out, betterhelp.com slash mental. And uh, one more survey before we get to the interview with Gabby. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Moop. And she writes, there are two happy moments here. First, anytime I hold my pet hedgehog, Jelly Bean, is a happy moment. I love him so much more than I ever thought I could love an animal. Every time I take him out of his cage, he starts out rolled up in a tiny little ball with all his pointy quills poking me. He looks like a sea urchin. But then after a few minutes of being held, he hesitantly unrolls with his little tiny brow furrowed as if he's trying to decide if I was justified in picking him up. It's really funny to me because what the fuck? Why can this little tiny creature creature furrow his tiny little brow to express mild annoyance? Is there some evolutionary advantage to that? After that, he usually relaxes and lets me pet him gently, still skeptical of me and a little afraid. Then I feed him a tiny bowl of live insects, his favorite snack, and suddenly he has no fear of humans. He starts vibrating from excitement moves his giant snoot around rapidly, then annihilates like 10 bugs in 30 seconds. After he's done, he usually plops down, face in the bowl, and falls asleep on me while I pet him. It's like every time I hold him, I have to regain his trust, and it's very rewarding. Some days he'll let me rub his tiny little feet or soft belly, and my heart feels so full. Second, for the past few months, my boyfriend has been working on a song about Jellybean. 
We're equally obsessed with this hedgehog, even though the hedgehog is indifferent to us. My boyfriend has been coming up with all these different guitar riffs and playing them over and over, but I hadn't really been listening because it became background noise and hearing him play the same things a million times on an unplugged electric guitar can get a little grating. He doesn't plug into an amp because it's easier for him to focus on the actual writing process that way. But two nights ago, he played me a full run-through, still unplugged, and I cried like a little bitch. It has no lyrics, yet it fully captures Jellybean's little personality and spirit. He put so much love, energy, and thoughtfulness into it. The song is ten fucking minutes long. Knowing that he loves this little odd creature as much as I do melts my heart. And in the back of my head, I always know Jellybean won't be around forever. He's two, and these guys usually live for around five years. But we're always going to have him with us through this song, in a way. We'll always be able to remember what he was like. And now I'm crying like a little bitch all over again because thinking about Jelly Bean being gone is incredibly sad. But knowing I'll always have this is kind of beautiful. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it, unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world. Everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Maybe well, listen, thanks for coming in. <laughs> I'm here with Gabby Hanna, who is a singer-songwriter and author. She's got a new book called Dandelion. Uh, kudos, by the way. I uh, Thank you. I read it last night, and it's such a combination of emotions, which to me, my my favorite art, uh, one of the reasons why I love the Beatles so much is the palette of emotions they express is it covers the the breadth of of life and it, it it feels like in many ways you've really kind of tackled that in the in, in the book there's stuff that's laugh out loud funny there's stuff that's heartbreaking and there's there's stuff that uh is confessional um and uh, a lot of it i think really relatable at least to the people that listen to this podcast so how's that for a long ass introduction <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it a lot because that's really what I go for in all of my work, whether it's a book or an album, whatever. And uh, you never know if that's what reads and what comes across. So thank you very much for validating me and uh, making one of my biggest fears, you know, dissipate a little bit. Yeah. Well, <laughs> speaking you. of fears, uh, I, was, I was talking to Gabby right before we started rolling and I explained what a fear off and love off is. And I haven't done one in a while on the, on the podcast. And you are so in touch with your fears and your neuroses uh, from reading the book. I, I, I gather that, that, and you're a creative person. So oh, it, comes, it comes through on the pages. Good. <laughs> <laughs> it comes through when the book's just sitting on the nightstand. That's, that's how you much you feel it, it radiating. It radiates. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it tries to slink out of the room. Uh, 
So uh, I thought, let's just try riffing on some fears and loves. And if we want to take a little detour and, and expand on some stuff, we could, uh, we could do that. But I definitely want to have you read some passages from the, the book at some point. Um, I'd love to. So I'll start off with a, a fear. I'm afraid that uh, I botch interviews and I make the same mistake over and over again and I can't see it. And if I could... Uh, I would have way more listeners and I'd be uh, on a hill with a perfect view and an awesome mid-century house. Well, what, what is giving you that fear? Where does it come from? It's just, have you been getting feedback like that or are you creating the feedback in your head? I'm I'm creating it in my head. As my therapist always says, what are the facts on the ground? And there, I I do get occasionally constructive uh, feedback from listeners, but um, there's, yeah, it's just that, do you have that fear where there's just something that other people can see that you can't and it's going to haunt, come back to bite you in the yeah. ass? Yeah, not just creatively, though. I would say that one of my biggest fears just in general is being completely oblivious and unaware of the reality. And what if I am so far gone, whether it's into narcissism or just self-delusion, that I am not the person I believe I am and that I've created a reality of my own in which I am one person, but to everybody else I'm not. And maybe my brain completely blocks that out because it's my own narcissistic defense mechanism to make me believe that I'm not a bad person. That's my biggest fear is being crazy or honestly just an awful person, delusional and not knowing it. I think mine, it definitely is deep rooted and just kind of the way I was raised and you know, just in general, but I think being on the internet and having so much constant criticism obviously feeds into that, especially when some of the criticism is kind of unkind. <laughs> I, I, I would imagine, I would imagine. Um, yeah, that, that fear is like the, the triple crown of the biggest ones, which is I don't have control, I am not smart, and I'm going to be abandoned. It's, it's, uh, those it's, are my top three, baby. We're yeah, going to go on just fine. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's an efficient, uh, negative, negative thought in the, in the head. Uh, give me a fear. Um, I think that that's, that's honestly my main one. I think one that I've had most of my life that I do actually feel dissipating a bit is the fear of not being successful, which I never realized was a fear until, it started getting challenged a little bit and the criticism was a little bit more because I find the more you put out, obviously I started putting out books and music. Everybody's, everybody's an expert kind of thing. And there are a lot of people with a lot of very valuable opinions, but when there's so much of it, it can really start to trigger that imposter syndrome of not actually being good enough. And what if the success that I had originally was on honestly just a fluke or a fad or whatever it is, so then I'm worried that what what if I'm not actually talented? What if it was just, you know, a rogue one hit wonder type thing? Yeah. <laughs> but also my vision of success has changed so much in the past year or so where I thought that success was only professionally or monetary. And now my vision of success is a well-rounded life where I'm actually doing things that feed my soul and make me feel good in my spare Yay. time. Yeah, it's Yay. been a hard journey, but we're, we're still not there. Uh, <laughs> I, but, but the light bulb went off in your head. And, you know, I used to be on TV and had a, a, a gig for a long time that 
you know, it was good money and, you know, had publicity and stuff like that. All the things I thought were going to fix me. And uh, one day I was on, uh, I used to always think when I would drive down Sunset Boulevard, if I could ever see my face on a billboard on Sunset Boulevard, that voice in my head that said, yeah, but your success really doesn't qualify. I thought if I could see that, that voice in my head would stop. And they took out a billboard and I drove past it and I lost respect for Sunset Boulevard. Oh, stop that. I swear to God. And I realized in that moment, there was something in me that can never be satisfied. And Mm -hmm. I'd yet to get sober and really kind of explore how fucked up my perceptions were and how I used people and how self-centered and angry and afraid I was. Mm -hmm. But when I did have that epiphany, like you shared, it was so life-changing because I I realized many of the things that can film me, I do have control over. It doesn't involve other people's opinion of me. So how did you get to that place? I think it just got to a point where, I mean, I relate to so much of what you're saying, especially when it comes to control. And I also have, still have, I wouldn't say had an obsession with the way others perceive me. And that's something that I'm definitely trying to work through because I didn't even really realize how much of it was how how big of a part it was of my life because I thought because that's how I've always been that that's how everybody is and that's just human nature to care about these things and now that I'm just I don't know I think as I'm kind of moving out of what I where I started which was YouTube and now I'm really focusing on music and poetry and just considering myself and my career path as an artist I've kind of had to give up a lot of that ego And starting from square one, from where I used to be, you know, very, very successful in the YouTube space, I'm not really doing that anymore. So I have to start over and it's real fucking humbling. (laughs) I bet. I bet. That's a a pretty brave move to uh, do what is in line with your soul rather than what you think is going to fill the bank. Yeah. And hopefully um, those two meet one day. But I totally get what you're saying in terms of never being satisfied. And I was actually just having this conversation recently where I realized that I have so much to be proud of. And for some reason, I still feel insignificant. And I give this advice to my friends whenever they're struggling, where I say, no matter what happens, if you never have another accomplishment from here on out, you still did this you still did this. You still left your mark on history. You still hosted this TV show. You still have this great success. So why can't I look at myself and say, no matter what, you're already a billboard charting artist. You're already a New York times bestseller. You've already also had your face on sunset Boulevard. Why are you so fucking empty? And I realized because those things don't matter what you're actually doing with your life and the people around you. It's so fucking corny and cliche, but it really is true. Like I'd rather spend all day with my cat then have another major success. I get that. I get that. I am afraid that I am on the last, the last leg of feeling uh, happy and proud of the way that my body works. And it's all downhill from here. And I won't have savored the, the good feelings and I will have taken for granted my body working. Wow, that's a heavy one. I feel like that's one that I'm maybe closely getting to, but you probably, I feel like we have a bit of an age difference. <laughs> yeah, it could okay, be your cool. father. I'm 57. 
Oh, you're older than my dad. <laughs> <laughs> my parents had kids very young. Yeah. But, um, oh, wow. I, I can't really fully empathize with that right now. But thank you for giving me a glimpse of the future. <laughs> we will we will come. You're 30. Is that right? I'm, I'm about- almost 30. And I'm reaching the point where, like, I can't run anymore because my feet and my knees start hurting. So I have to find other workouts and my I'm getting the wrinkles and everything's sinking. So I am approaching it. I'll be there soon. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I remember feeling that in my 30s, being like, God, why can't I feel like I did in my 20s? So my and the truth m- is, it is all downhill from here. <laughs> it really is. It's it's uphill until we're 21. We can drink. And then it's just, an, you know, every birthday is like, ugh. <laughs> Here yeah, we totally. go. Uh, hit me with another fear. Another fear. Um, can I give you a very irrational one? Of course. I always have this strange fear that I'm going to do something insane and hurt myself, like stick my hand into a garbage disposal. I have an irrational fear of my garbage disposal. I don't know why. I'm constantly afraid of also hitting somebody with my car, I'm really afraid of accidentally murdering somebody. So I guess the accidental violence thing or where I can just fuck up my whole life and somebody's family's life haunts me more than it should. I relate to that so, so much. And I think a lot of people do both, both parts. Uh, I have the fear sometimes that I'm going to go for the break, but I'll accidentally hit the gas and it'll Mm -hmm. look like I sped up into a baby Mm -hmm. carriage. And, 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 and not only that, then I will go to the court case and, and being, uh, cross-examined and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's, I feel uh, like I'm looking at a version of myself right now. <laughs> well, <laughs> I well, love this. I love this game we're playing because it actually makes, it makes our irrational fears feel very rational, right? Yeah. And I cannot tell you, there are surveys that people take, uh, for the, the podcast, they take them anonymously in thousands and thousands of people have taken these. So I, I see patterns of what is common and what, what isn't. And what you just shared is one of the most common negative thoughts that, that plagues wow. people. They're afraid if they're on a rooftop that they're going to jump, even though they don't want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why is that? We just feel yeah. like we don't have some sense of control of our own bodies. I, I guess so. I think we don't trust maybe our own integrity. I would imagine at the heart of it for a lot of us is perfectionism and to mm. make a mistake is to die. So why Whoa. not extrapolate it into actually making dying. a mistake and there's death right. involved, but even worse than us dying, we have to hang around with the guilt of someone else's death. Yeah, that one honestly scares me more because I think the death thing is quick and painless and you might go out with a story, but if you accidentally kill somebody, that's going to haunt you and ruin somebody else's entire, like their whole dynamic. Right, right. To me, living disliked is worse than dying. Yeah, (laughs) you're right. So are we narcissists or... I don't know. I, I think <laughs> I think definitely people pleasers. Um, yeah, I think yeah. insecure is probably insecure. More so. Insecure, but I've yet yeah. to meet an artist that's that's totally secure. They they have flashes of security, but it's one of the reasons that makes them a good artist is they're constantly questioning, they're constantly examining. But I think it's also why sometimes we struggle with intimacy in relationships because we do mm-hmm. navel gaze uh, a lot. Uh, 
what a good segue. What was that word it, you just used? Navel gaze? Navel gazing. Yeah. Just kind of mm. being, you know, obsessed with ourselves, gazing down at our, our navel. Um, you, do you have a copy of your book handy? I do. I really appreciate you um, reading the book, by the way. <laughs> it's funny. I, I normally don't, be, but this was such a, a quick read. You know, I have to, I have to keep, my battery from from draining course, with yeah. the heavy subject material. But I looked at a couple of things in your book and I was like, oh, I can do this. I can do Love this. Love that. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. Um, you want me to read Desirable? Yeah. Okay. It's a, it's a quick one. Um, yeah. I've never been the one that got away, but I have been the one someone escaped from a time or two. <laughs> <laughs> so great. And it's so honest. <laughs> It's so it is honest. honest yeah. yeah, I wrote a song about that one too. <laughs> uh, do you do you want to extrapolate on any uh, toxic relationships you've had, specifically where you can look back and see your part in the toxicity? Yeah, I I think that um, I had this weird phenomenon in my life where it felt like every time I got a new boyfriend, I was dating the most recent version of myself. And it was like that new boyfriend reflected my most toxic traits. So then I would date that person. And I would say, I recognize myself in this. This is what it feels like to be on the other end. Let me correct these behaviors. And then I would move on to the next one. And it was like, those next toxic traits that still existed and survived the last round were in that last next guy. And I think that it was some type of karmic intervention, or maybe it was just me finding people who were exactly on par with who I was and where I was growing until I finally landed in a relationship where I was like, Oh, we're both healthy now. And it was like, uh, it was like straight up the most direct karma of my life actually. So I've had a lot of toxic traits and I've been in a lot of toxic relationships where they were toxic and so was I until I got to the point where I was no longer accepting any type of toxic trait and was ready to just be healthy. Uh, uh, it's such a great mile marker in one's life when you can recognize toxicity and, and step away from it, especially with compassion, you know, not to demonize the other person, but to just say, hey, you know, this is just, it's not good for me. I had to do that with my mom. I love her. I have compassion for her, but mm -hmm. it is not mentally healthy for me to, to, to have a yeah. relationship with her. And it's one of the things I'm most proud of is that I was able to make such a, a, a difficult decision so we both have the mommy issues that's why yeah. we're. yeah <laughs> well that 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 might be a good thing to to read next it's a bit long uh but it's so interesting to me uh the pink journal okay here we go um so there's actually three editions of this book and uh you have the primary which has the essays which i'm glad that you have that one um so this one, I actually, there's some stuff that I wrote in here that I wrote on a whim and was really riding the high of the creativity and wanting to be really open. And then when it's time for it to actually come out, it gets, it gets so intense because this is something I've never spoken about before. And now it's, for everybody and yeah here we go <laughs> and, and and i just want to preface this uh by by saying that it it was prefaced by you 
saying that you you love your parents and that there's there's a bit of anguish involved in you sharing stuff that doesn't reflect them in a flattering light, but you've shared yeah. all of these great qualities that 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 they have and yeah. things that they have done for you. And I think that's an important uh, thing to, for people to keep in mind when they. Thank you this. for for prefacing that because I probably wouldn't have. But you're right, and there is something to be said as I get older and I start to hit the age that my mom was when she was raising me, where I start experiencing some of the things that she was experiencing, but I'm in a position in life where I'm much better to equip or much better equipped to deal with them than she was. Meaning I'm, you know, living in a, a house that I like, I don't have any kids. I don't have overwhelming stress and responsibility financially I'm not in the situation she was in relationship wise I'm not in her situation so it's hard as I get older to still approach it with that same anger and resentment and now it's kind of shifted to empathy but obviously still keeping boundaries intact and yeah you know you know how it goes <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah so thank you for that mm-hmm. um would you like me to read it yes please cool this one's called the pink journal and this is something I've never talked about before so here we go My mom was a hoarder. That's something I hid from for the majority of my life. No one knew because no one came over. The humiliation haunted me every day when I showed up to school, wondering if anyone could smell the aroma of filth and must wafting from my clothes. It wormed its way into my adulthood as I tried to fight the learned behavior of holding on to items that were no longer needed. The fear of having nothing was so ingrained, was ingrained so deeply in my psyche that I learned to keep, well, everything. Growing up was lonely. I couldn't invite people over to my house, so no one invited me to theirs. I watched longingly as the entire cheerleading squad walked together to one of their homes to hang out after practice, the only one who wasn't invited being me. I listened desperately as the kids at school talked about the movies they'd watched the night before as they roared with laughter at the inside jokes. I didn't get to laugh. I was on the outside. My days weren't spent gossiping or swimming with friends. They were spent at home, raising the younger kids and trying to keep up with the mess. My mom demanded that I clean the house, but didn't allow me to throw anything away. It was as if she was hoping I could somehow turn trash into treasure, polish the dumpster in which we were living. Morning tonight, screaming to clean. Morning tonight, cleaning. Morning tonight, screaming that I cleaned the wrong place, the wrong way. Morning tonight, staring in hopelessness as the trash bags I filled were ripped apart and thrown back across the floor. It was a battle I could never win. My nights weren't spent at sleepovers or on the phone with friends. They were spent waking up with the kids when they needed to be fed or changed. They were spent comforting them when they were woken up by the screaming. They were spent trying to stop the fighting between my parents. It was breaking glass, the sound of my childhood home being ripped apart piece by piece. After school, if I tried to take a nap to catch up on lost sleep, I was shaken awake by a thunderous voice demanding that I clean. It was violence. It was shouting. It was being put to work, raising children, chasing after a never-ending mess. It was being punished for doing it all wrong. It was hell. My dad didn't help. He believed everyone should clean up after themselves. So he washed his own dish. He did his own laundry. He took care of his own belongings. At some point, I think he forgot that there were four younger children who needed their dishes to be washed, who needed their laundry to be done, who needed the bathtub to be cleaned, the floors to be swept, their rooms dusted. He wanted to be angry about the mess, but he didn't want to do anything about it. This wasn't his responsibility. It was mine and my older sister's. One day, I was cleaning the single bathroom shared by nine people. The cabinets were filled with empty bottles, half-used hotel toiletries, expired hair dye that stained the countertop. 
junk mail and school projects that made their way upstairs covered in oil and stains. Old magazines soaked in water and whatever else you might find in a bathroom crumpled and curling at the edges. A decade of toothbrushes, always multiplying, never thrown away, makeup and nail polish that would give you an infection if you dared to use it. I picked all the laundry up off the floor and put it in the hamper, then took the hamper to the basement to join the mountains of mold-covered clothing. I wiped down the countertop, trying my best to ignore the rust and discoloration that couldn't be removed, grateful that we never had guests. I started to fill a black garbage bag with the toilet paper rolls, ripped papers, food packages, and other miscellaneous trash that somehow wound up on the bathroom floor. It took some time, but the bathroom looked livable. My mom came home from who knows where as I was tying the black bag, furious that I'd cleaned the bathroom instead of the kitchen. She told me that I tell, she demanded that I tell her what was in the bag. Trash, I told her. The trash bag was full of trash. She yanked the bag from my hands and tore it open like a pinata, splaying all my hard work across the floor. She frantically grabbed at the pile like a child at a birthday party, plucking out miniature bottles and crumpled papers. Her hands found an old pink sparkly journal. The spine had been entirely cracked, causing it to limply flop around as she waved it in my face. The sad, unused paper was empty of any writing, but filled with stains and bacteria of every variation. The pages were ripped and folded in a way that prohibited the journal from lying flat, that warned against trusting it with your most personal thoughts. It was garbage. She scolded me for being wasteful, for throwing away her things. She braided me for causing more work for her, for wasting her time. She shoved that journal in my face the way my dad pushed our dog's face into her own shit to teach her what she had done wrong. That was my breaking point. I snatched the disgusting, pink, sparkly journal from her hands, cocked back, and launched it at her face. I did it without thinking. It was primal. As it turns out, being raised with violence makes you violent. In shock at what I had just done, I noticed a small red circle formed just above her eyebrow. I stared in panic as a thin stream of blood trickled down her face. Then I ran. I was much bigger than her, but I felt small, scared. She called the police, but when they came to the door, I hid. I think my dad talked to them. I honestly don't know. This was the first time she tried to have, this wasn't the first time she tried to have me arrested, but it was the first time I actually did something to feel like I deserved it. An hour later, it was like nothing had ever happened. Everything went back to the way it always was. That was usually how it went down. A big eruption followed by nothing. I went to the kitchen and started on the dishes. Wow. Wow. Thank that you. <laughs> so intense and such a detailed picture, you know, even if it's something that's painful. One, one of my favorite things on the podcast is when somebody makes a little movie for us so that we can imagine what it's like to be in their, in their mm -hmm. skin. But that's even hard to imagine what, what you went through. Um, it, it sounds so overwhelming, uh, sensorily and mm -hmm. emotionally. What, yeah. As you were reading it and I imagine kind of re reliving what, if any thoughts or feelings uh, were popping. I've actually, um, practiced reading some of these out loud a few times because it's hard to get through without getting choked up because these are feelings and emotions that I don't tell anybody, people that are even closest to me. I don't think I'd mentioned to anybody in my life that my mom was a hoarder until I was maybe 27 or eight, which was a year or two ago. And it's because her mom was also a hoarder. <laughs> so it's never been something that I'm super open about. Um, 
And it is hard to remember because it's something that doesn't become clear until you're older because it's all I've known. Like I wasn't offered another, another example really. So when I think of, you know, violence and toxicity and abuse, that's the reason I had so many problematic relationships because my, my image of abuse was so large that anything that didn't come close to that didn't register to me as not okay. So that's, you know, that's one of the things I'm, I am worried about putting out. Um, obviously I'm afraid of hurting my family. I'm afraid of the judgment. I'm afraid of my grandma being very upset about it. And I'm also, it's embarrassing, even though I know that that's, it's not my fault. It's embarrassing for people to know where you come from. And, you know, one of the positive things I think about talking about stuff like that is it, it helps us humanize the, whatever the issue is. And hoarding, I think, is one of those things that can so easily be a punchline and people don't really stop to think about the pain and the fear and probably the trauma that's going on inside somebody who is afraid to let things go that feels like yeah. they need that little tiny empty bottle or that sparkly pink journal. Yeah. And it comes from, you know, so much trauma of and fear of abandonment and obviously mental health issues, but there's this feeling of needing to be able to control and you know, you see it a lot with the homeless on the streets where they have these buggies full of things that they, they don't need, they probably won't use. It's actually causing them probably more stress and anxiety trying to figure out how to move two shopping carts full of things around. And it's that bigger scale inside of house. It's, it's fear of money. It's fear of your husband leaving you. So needing to make sure that you have clothes for the kids, even though those clothes aren't wearable anymore, but you don't, you don't know what you'll have or what you'll need. So the, to hold on to everything because you're so used to losing so much. Hmm. One of the things that, that in my limited experience of talking to people who've experienced hoarding um, is that the, the hoarder very often has a love of tradition you know, be it holidays or anniversaries or, or, or certain things that there is a, I don't know, just a, a, a love of them that seems to go beyond uh, what the average person's. Was, was that the case at all with, uh, with your mom or was she just kind of average about, uh, you know, generational traditions right. or? It's kind of honestly hard for me to say because I don't, I couldn't tell you the last time I had a conversation with my mom and so much of, and like, obviously I've, I've spoken to my mom, but when I've actually gotten to the root and the core of who she is, I don't know my mom. I only know this, this outer shell of her that's angry and is a hoarder and yells and is very defensive. And, you know, I see her and I see what I, I can be if I wasn't in the situation that I'm in and I wasn't putting in the work so, you know, I, I know that she's very obsessed with family. And when it comes to Christmas time, for example, I know that she loves the idea of having a Christmas Eve tradition. I know she loves the idea of everyone going to church and then going here and then putting out the cookies and then doing this and that before the kids wake up. But she's not great at implementing them because there's so much other stuff that's getting in the way. So I think that in her perfect dream world, I think that is who she is, but it's kind of impossible for me to 
speak on it. So do you not have contact with her? I, her number's not blocked, if that's what you mean. But I got you. Um, I, you know, when I go home for Christmas, she's there. But I, I, I'm not in a place with her right now where I could just call her to see what's up. Um, I did message her in writing the Barnes and Noble version of this book that has um, letters to strangers in it. And I, oh no, actually, it was it was this book, and it was so strange because it was right after I wrote that intro to the book that I was talking about how my mom instilled in me a sense of uniqueness and creativity where she would like hand make all of our Halloween costumes. And I had this really emotional night where I was just absolutely sobbing, thinking about looking at my mom in a different light. It was the first time I really felt true empathy for my mother because I know that she's always wanted a family. It's why we have seven kids in the family. She's always wanted to be surrounded with that love and she's not because she makes it very difficult. And the very next day, we never really talk. She texted me a picture of me in a costume that she made for me. And it was this really weird universal thing where it's like I wrote this piece about my mom and making these costumes. And then she reached out to me. So in that moment, I was able to say to her, you know, thank you for putting me in band and choir and encouraging me to be in theater. So there's definitely hope that someday we can have a more open conversation. Thank you for, for sharing that. It's amazing how complicated human beings can be, especially the ones that we are uh, related to. It's mm-hmm. um, just end- endlessly fascinating, the, the dark and the light that one human being can, can have. And uh, yeah. I suppose it's one of the things that makes life interesting. Uh, would you read on page, uh, don't worry, I'm not going to make you read your whole book. Uh, <laughs> no, I on, don't mind. <laughs> on page, it's Necro. That's yeah. one of my favorites. That's yeah. one of the very first ones I wrote in this book, like two and a half, three years ago. Um, here we go. Necro. I wish you were dead. Not because I hate you, but because I love you so much. It's too hard knowing that you're walking around all breathy and pulsy and not decomposy and I can't have you. I want your outsides to match my insides. I want them to be all still and rotting and soon to be forgotten. I want to know that the reason you're not calling is your fingers have turned to dust. I fantasize that the reason you don't think about me is the worms have eaten your memory. It's much kinder to say I can't have your heart because it no longer beats. Let me down gently. Just die already. <laughs> it's so beautifully fucked up. <laughs> Thanks. So beautifully fucked up. Uh, very selfish. Uh, but human. But human. Hey, all right. Okay. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if part of what humanizes things for me is when we can own our shit and we can say, hey, this is what I'm feeling. Um, there are there are no feelings that are wrong. There there's just healthy or unhealthy ways of expressing them. And I think a lot of people who heard you read that are going to be like, "Oh boy, does that describe me?" And such and such. And <laughs> oh, is it a common feeling? Because I was starting to feel like a sociopath. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I I I don't think it's uncommon because it's when we want something, especially when we feel existentially threatened by it. Oh, the the things that our brain will come up with to meet that expectation uh, mm-hmm. is, is crazy, you know? Yeah. 
Right. So talk about relationship struggles you've 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 had one of the things you shared in the book and I'm not going to ask you to to read the story but you shared about some pretty intense violations that you experienced uh when you were when you were dating and yeah. um where where are you at with that and if you can give the the listener kind of a um an sure. overview of the arc of your struggle with so um that one during the audiobook reading was was a struggle and I you can probably hear me crying a bit in it that that one is is tough to get through um I've been in a few situations that I think goes back to the idea of you don't really understand abuse when you're raised in abuse and um there's one situation of physical violence and then there is another situation of sexual assault detailed in the book and it's it's hard to process because I didn't even process two separate situations in my life. That that's how much I throw myself into bad situations as rape because it was never instilled in me that my body has boundaries and that I should have boundaries and that I should be respected and that I am an autonomous person that lives for myself and not for others. And in the domestic violence situation with the physical violence, how can, how could I possibly be in a healthy relationship given how I was raised and what I was watching? And that's one of the reasons I really wanted to take that step in talking about it in the book, not only as a message to my family who will ultimately see it, because I do think they need to understand the long-term implications of what that type of behavior does. But I also think that it could be a message to people who realize or may not realize that they're in a situation or that something was assault or that they deserved better. And I think the the one in particular, I think it's called an incredible disappointment. That's about the sexual assault. That was really hard for me to process. And I say in that piece that I don't remember crying, but I remember tears running down my face because I, I couldn't physically cry about it because I kept telling myself it wasn't a big deal and that it wasn't what it was. And I, I don't know. It's, it's weird when you, when your self-worth is so low and your self-esteem is so low, what you'll allow and accept and what you'll hold accountable. Sorry if that didn't answer your question. <laughs> uh, no, you, you totally answered uh, my question. And that is one of the weird things that our brain does is to let uh, people who hurt us off the hook. And that, and that doesn't mean that it's bad to have empathy or compassion for them, but to have compassion for ourselves is the, yeah. is such a struggle. And, and yeah. is there a fear also that you will share something and somebody's going to say, Oh, that's not valid. Yeah. I actually had a bit of a, an anxiety attack the other night when I was thinking about those essays going out and obviously the reaction from my family, but one that I didn't really think about was the reaction of the boyfriend that I wrote about in, um, I forget what that one's called. The one about the domestic violence. What was it called? <laughs> I feel like I should know. <laughs> I'll find it. Um, it was called, I think it's the third story, the waiting game. Um, yeah, there, there is a fear that, I say it, I talk about in that story about how nobody believed me towards the end and everybody was on his side and I was just kind of painted as this crazy 
instigator who was trying to ruin his life. Um, so if him or whoever else wants to come out and say, well, that's actually not what happened. And here's this version of events. It is scary because I wouldn't ever want to get down into that rabbit hole of proving it or fighting it or even opening up that gate for him to be back in my life in any capacity, but it's too late now. It's already published. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things that survivors do is they conflate uh, some behavior that happened, you know, maybe that night with it being an open door for somebody to abuse you. And I always say, you know, if you were passed out naked in an alley, that doesn't give someone the right to rape you. It, yeah. it, it, it doesn't matter how much you, you had to drink, but for some reason with survivors, that's, that's the place they will go to. And do you yeah. think that's our way, our brain's way of, uh, avoiding the truth that there's a lot of chaos and, and fucked up. <laughs> Absolutely. People it's, out there. It's a defense mechanism in the way that you don't want to, I don't think anybody likes being a victim. I think if you're somebody who is excited about being a victim, then there's something else to address there. But by acknowledging what that is, it makes it very real because you now go from being a person to being a survivor. And I, I've always wanted to avoid that feeling. So you make excuses for it. You say, Oh, well, he, he was drunk or he was this, or I deserved it because of this, or maybe it was both of our fault or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's not. And you're lying to yourself to try to mask the pain of what's actually there and blaming yourself instead of blaming somebody else, because that's out of your control. That person and what happens is out of your control. But if it's your own fault, then, oh, well, I can, I can stomach that. You touch on in the, in the book, you touch on, uh, struggles with food. Mm -hmm. You comfortable talking about that? That wouldn't be funny yeah. if that was the one thing you were uncomfortable that, talking that's about. That's where I draw my yeah. line. <laughs> nope. I will not talk about carbs. <laughs> no, I, I uh, actually recently had that realization too. All of those essays were actually written in a pretty short period of time because I, I avoided it for so long. Like the book deadline kept approaching and then getting pushed back and they kept saying, we need your essays. And I had the list of stories I wanted to tell and I couldn't just get myself to tell them. So it was kind of last minute. All right, here we go. Writing them all out right now. Um, kind of impulsively, but not really more of a procrastination thing. But that's something that I don't really mind opening up about a lot because I'm not, I'm not embarrassed or ashamed of having struggles with food. I think a lot of people do. And being able to pinpoint that moment where it started is what ultimately helped me heal from it. So for the people listening who obviously didn't read it yet. Um, there's just a story about when I was seven or eight years old, where my mother said something to me that triggered a lifelong eating disorder, essentially. But the good, the good part of that story is I got out of it. And now I have a really healthy relationship with food and diet and exercise. But it's something that took me way too long to, to, to reach that. So I was just hoping that somebody would read that and be able to fix themselves much sooner than I was. Yeah. Uh, talk about the relationship between food and, and body and how yeah. you view yourself physically. So I used to look at food as strictly energy where, and it is, food is energy, but 
when you don't understand how food works and how calories and carbs work, you stop giving your body that energy, which makes your body shut down, which makes it look and feel worse. And then you're not actually being healthy and it's a self-feeding cycle. But at some point along the line, I forgot that food was also meant to be enjoyed. It's one of the cool parts about being human is we're able to experiment with flavors and cook and experience other people's cultures and learn about other people through food. And it's fun. It's fun to eat. And I never was just, you know, let me go get an ice cream because it's fun. I'm allowed to do this. It was always a guilt thing where the entire time I was eating it, I wasn't really enjoying it because I knew I was going to regret it in the morning. And then the next day I would punish myself by over-exercising or not eating, trying to balance it out. But life really is about a balance and the same with food. It's okay to have a dessert even once a day, just, you know, keep it low key and moderate yourself. And it sounds so easy and you hear it a million times, but for some reason, when you struggle with what food actually is, and that of course all goes back to childhood stuff too, but you, you like just, you just forget. That's the only way I know how to say it is you forget what it's supposed to be and it becomes a punishment. And that was what 90% of my day was focused on for a long time was food. When's my next meal? I just finished breakfast. It wasn't enough. So I'm still hungry, but I'm not allowed to eat lunch for six hours. So then that entire six hours, I'm just thinking about lunch and then I eat lunch and I'm thinking, I can't wait till dinner. It's fucked. (laughs) It's really fucked. It's really fucked. Um, Do you struggle with eating? um, I I struggle with eating sugar right before I go to bed because it feels Mm -hmm. uh, like I'm getting into a warm jacuzzi after I eat a couple of bowls of cereal and it, it, because I do struggle a bit with insomnia and it, it just um, a lot of times I'll wake up at four 30 in the morning and I just, I feel like I'm crawling out of my skin and I'll go have two bowls of cereal and I'll be asleep within five minutes, but eating two bowls of carbs right before you go lay down, it, it affects your body and your energy. And so then, you know, in the afternoon, three o'clock in the afternoon, I'll feel like, oh my God, I got to lay down. I'm so exhausted. So um, I know there's a relationship between that. But I'll tell you this, when I'm eating that cereal, I fucking enjoy it and I allow myself to enjoy it. And I say, okay, you know, this is a, something that I'm struggling with and trying to find, uh, to find a way to fall asleep more healthily. But until then, I get to enjoy some delicious raisin bran and um, I'm not yeah. going to hate myself for it. That's good. I'm glad you can do that. There is just something comforting about having something tasty in your stomach. Yeah. And, and there's yeah. <laughs> and there's a... Um, you know, there's a difference, I, th- I think, between being a perfectionist about your food and looking and, and setting a, a goal that you can treat mildly rather than like a dictator. Yeah, definitely. Well, you you really have like put in the time and, and work on yourself. And I, I don't know a ton about you yet. I haven't had a chance to look. I've obviously watched some stuff when I got this interview, but I mean, you're just, you're pleasant. <laughs> oh, that means a lot to me. I, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. I feel like I could learn a lot from talking and listening to you, which is why, probably why your readers love you and your listeners oh, love you. I mean, oh, thank you. Thank you. A lot of support groups, a lot of therapy, a uh, lot of uh, leaning on friends and, and keeping mm-hmm. my, my ears open. It, you know, one of the things that I struggle with is I want to be a know-it-all because one of my fears is looking stupid. And mm-hmm. isn't it funny when we have a fear, sometimes the very thing 
that we're trying to avoid, the fear we're trying to avoid, we wind up using a coping mechanism that brings the result about anyway. You know, people get yeah. annoyed or, you know, they're, we become a handful because we're trying yeah. to not look stupid or, you know, we're trying to be special. Yeah, that's that's my detriment as well. <laughs> Give me a greatest hits of the mean voice in your head on a on a daily basis. The greatest hits of the mean thoughts in my head are I am washed up. I don't deserve what I have. It was a strike of lightning. It's all downhill from here. Um, the people in my life are only here because they think that they can get something from me. And then once they get it, they're going to bounce. I am not actually talented at all. It's mostly, it is a lot of self-perception stuff. And I think we talked about this, like right at the beginning of this, where I'm so concerned with the way I look, whether it's looking stupid, um, whether it's looking overly defensive, it's overthinking every single step and every single word and punishing myself for it all day and reliving every embarrassing or shameful moment that I've ever had on repeat constantly. <laughs> Have you ever extrapolated your fears coming true and painted a picture of what then that would look like? You mean like, have they come true or like in my head, what in is, your head, does it get, does it get beyond, Oh, you know, people are using me or I'm washed up. You know, do you, well, then my brain is a like constant in, in five minutes, I can tell myself that everybody in my life right now are the most genuine, accepting, amazing people. And that is the truth. I know that that is the truth. But then two minutes later, if enough people are saying, oh, well, uh, they're just enabling her or they're yes men, then that's where I start worrying. Well, what if they are yes men and they are enabling me? And the only reason I do like them so much and the reason I view them as these kind, wonderful people who I want to have in my life is because they are yes men and they're enabling my bad behaviors and their doormats and da 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 da, da. So yeah, it, it's a lot of back and forth, but I am generally able to see the reality. Like one of my fears is, well, I'm, I'm actually not talented and everything's going to crash and I'm going to have nothing. and I'm not going to be successful in music and writing. And then I'm going to end up broken, homeless. And I'm going to have nothing. I know that's not the case. I know that even if this path didn't go for me and I didn't become a, a famous artist, I know that I'm a great writer and I would write songs for somebody else or I would do graphic design for somebody else. Like no matter what, I know I'm going to be fine, but still 50 times a day, it's like, oh, my life's going to be over tomorrow. <laughs> I, I will sometimes tell myself, is this going to matter five years from now, the thing that you're worried about? Because how many, how many things that you were worried about five years ago are fucking with you right now in reality? All of them. No, <laughs> well, then we are done. Some of them. <laughs> we are done. Um, no, not much. You're 100% right. And I think one of my biggest, biggest downfalls I'll actually call it my number one downfall is my impatience. Like I'll, I know bad times pass, but I, I'm just so fucking eager to get out of it that I stop living in the moment and enjoying the actual moment, just waiting for the next best thing to come. Oh boy, do I relate to that one. It's so mm -hmm. just getting through the thing to get to the better thing. Uh, I, yeah. I remember driving to a baseball game with somebody one time and this person was driving just like a complete impatient asshole, weaving in and out of cars, getting pissed off Sorry at people. Sorry about that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> honking at people. And then they got out of the, the car at the game and wondered why nobody was having a good time. 
Yeah. And it's like there's this delineation in their mind of this is one thing and then the other is another thing and they both have different rules and I can't possibly have fun if driving is involved. Right. Right. Yeah, good a lot of good anecdotes. Yeah, I can't wait I love to just stories. listen to this podcast and just take notes. Uh, well, there it, it, it's all a, a shit show. This has been a glorious uh, show of smoke and mirrors, and uh, <laughs> no, that's no, the there's some, there's some, there's some great conversations in there, and and uh, yeah, some some people really, really go deep in their interviews, and it's the whole reason I started the podcast is um, I knew uh, having gotten out of the darkness. Uh, that there had to be other people and uh, we feel so alone when we're in that place where we think we've blown it. Uh, you know, it's, it's all downhill and yeah. we're a burden and uh, you know, might as well, might as well end it. It's such a terrible, terrible yeah. place to be. That word uh, shows up in my work a lot. The word burden comes into a lot of my songs. Cause that was, I think up until a couple years ago, I have, really related to that word and just felt like I am a burden on everybody that comes by. And even if, even if I we're not dating or whatever it is, just the fact that I have so much drama or insecurity and I feel like something's always going wrong with me. I feel like that's spilling on to everybody around me and it makes you really want to isolate yourself, especially if something or someone is validating that feeling for you and being in the public eye, a lot of times people will validate that feeling for you. Right. Uh, yeah. We interviewed somebody who was a California uh, highway patrolman, and he patrolled the Golden Gate Bridge for, for years, and he talked many people down, and he said mm. nearly every single person who was uh, considering suicide, the one thing they all said was, I feel like a burden. Mm. Yeah, it's a sadly relatable it, it, Yeah, it it is, and uh, you know, if they talk to people in their lives. I can't imagine many of them would say you're a burden, you know? Yeah. I think that's the meanest thing you could possibly say to somebody. Yeah. Unless you do it on Bumble. <laughs> and then that's just efficient. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, anything you want to share before we, uh, before we go? Oh, I don't I'm an oversharer, so if you ask me that open-ended question, we'll just talk for hours. But yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate uh, just you, for, like I said, reading the book. And you're obviously just a very empathetic, understanding person. And I feel very blessed to have had this platform to just really have a, a grown-up, authentic conversation. Uh, well, thank you. I really appreciate that, Gabby. Uh, Gabby's book is called Dandelion. It gets released uh, on October 13th. Uh, and I think... This will either be up a few days before that or a few days after that. So, um, Gabby, thank you so much. Thank you so much. You're incredible. I'm going to go binge the rest of your episodes now. Oh, uh, you're very <laughs> nice. You're very nice. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, this episode is sponsored by the ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program. Uh, you guys know how much uh, my dog, Gracie, means to me. Now, imagine this. Imagine that you have a Gracie in your life and you're at the vet's office and uh, all of a sudden you get a bill for a couple of grand. Well, if you had pet insurance, your pet could be covered for accidents or illnesses. And that's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA 
Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim, and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash mental. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash mental. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash mental. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. This episode is sponsored by Cerebral. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online, you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. And judgment-free is definitely how I would describe uh, the sessions that I've had with my cerebral therapist. Her name is Megan. She is thoughtful. She is empathetic and uh, and she's knowledgeable and she's been helping me clarify baby steps I can take to uh, help achieve the professional goals that I uh, am trying to set. Um, I'm a big fan. All cerebral clinicians are vetted, credentialed, and trained to help you feel better. They stay up to date on the latest studies and breakthroughs so they can provide quality care that's based on rigorous research. To get started on your path towards better mental health, Cerebral is giving our listeners 15% off the first month of online therapy, medication, or both. Get started at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use the code MENTAL. That's Cerebral, C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L dot com slash podcast and then use the code MENTAL to get 15% off your first month. Make 2024 your best year yet. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. See site for details. Got a bunch of surveys to to read before I get to that. Um, You can always use your support, whether it's financial or non-financial. You can uh, contribute through PayPal, uh, doing a one. You can actually do a monthly through PayPal, but it's much better to do it through uh, Patreon. It's just uh, PayPal's interface is so shitty. Um, <laughs> We're sponsored today by PayPal. Wouldn't that be awesome? Uh, you can support us non-financially by uh, subscribing to the podcast. That is a huge, huge way to uh, to support us. And uh, going to iTunes giving us a good rating, writing something nice about it, uh, spreading the word through social media. That's another great way to uh, to help the podcast. Or sit on your couch with your thumb up your ass and tell me to go fuck myself. Um, as long as I'm getting attention, I, I don't really care if it's negative. 
uh, let's get to some surveys. This is the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Anna, who writes about her postpartum depression. Feeling immense love, but not being filled by it, like trying to fill the Grand Canyon with an eyedropper. About her postpartum anxiety, intrusive thoughts that make you want to blow your brains out, and suddenly being convinced your house is haunted. The absolute edge of sanity. Snapshot from her life. I'm looking at my baby, and she smiles at me. I feel such incomprehensible love, but I'm still just a joy-sucking black hole. I'm positive I'm ruining her already. I force the despair from my face, but I can't stop crying. I'm just so glad she's too young to ask why I'm crying. She just keeps smiling. Wow. Wow. I cannot imagine what... What, how, how powerless somebody in that must feel and, and, and just like you're right on the edge of something so great and you're just watching it pass through you without, you know, I've experienced times where I intellectually knew that my life was great, but I couldn't, couldn't feel it. But this sounds like that times, times a hundred this is from the Psych Ward Experiences survey filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Sam. She's in her 30s. And uh, why were you hospitalized? I was hospitalized twice. Both were after suicide attempts. The first time I overdosed on sleeping pills and tied a plastic bag over my head. The second time I OD'd on painkillers. I was in college at the time. Each time I panicked and confessed to someone else what I had done. The second time after I took the painkillers, I went to the bathroom and started peeing out blood. I screamed and passed out, and someone in my dorm room called the paramedics. Describe your experience. Uh, being in the psych ward absolutely did not help. I was terrified the entire time. I was a very shy, sheltered 18-year-old girl surrounded mostly by much older men, some of whom tried to flirt with me. Some of these people were violent or psychotic. They put me in a room with an older woman who screamed all night long so I couldn't sleep. While I was there, I decided that I couldn't take it anymore and was going to try to kill myself again. In between night checks from the nurses, I tore a pair of my pants into strips and tied them into a makeshift rope to tie to the shower head, which was the only place in the room I could possibly hang myself from. I tried it for a minute or two, but it wasn't really working and I gave up. I lied to the therapists and psychiatrists the whole time, telling them I was fine and it had been a mistake to try to kill myself and that I was feeling well enough to go home. I said this all because I, all I wanted to do was get out and try to kill myself again, but succeed this time. Eventually, after my second hospitalization, my depression improved through a combination of medication and therapy, but it took months and months of effort. The psych ward didn't help at all. Wow, thank you for that, and I'm so glad that you are in a better place now. Um, if I have any advice for people who are suffering with uh, depression and hopelessness, it it is to be patient with the process. It's so hard, but being kind to ourselves, taking naps when we feel like it, you know, if, if we need to cancel plans uh, because we just can't bear to see other people, uh, you know, do it without beating yourself up about about doing it you know we don't blame ourselves when we get the flu we don't tell ourselves that we're weak and i look at 
depression and other mental uh, struggles as things like that. This is an awful, this one is very odd and interesting. It's an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Officer Friendly, and uh, he is in his 30s. And he writes, Hi, Paul, my name is Alex, and I'm from uh, Germany. I love your show, and I listen to all the episodes I can get my hands on. Whenever I have time, you helped me a lot looking at the bigger picture and reflect the darker side of my own masculinity. I love your voice and your humor. That is sometimes such a great mechanism of coping with sad things. Thank you so much for doing this amazing work there on the other half of the planet. I love you. Here's my survey, and I don't know if it is uh, even more of a love survey or not, but please forgive me for my boring wooden German English. Uh, One of the kids in my woodwork course is stealing stuff. It's a little boy who is a first grader. He always comes with his older brother. I was never mad at him because I know he's just a kiddo and maybe often in the shadow of his two years older brother. Uh, Also, uh, I know that stealing stuff brings joy. Today, he was stealing $2 from another kid. I instinctively knew it was him, but I asked all the kids if they had seen some $2 uh, somewhere around and if they can help find it. The kid he had stolen from was crying big tears because $2 and especially money must mean so much to a toddler his age. I gave him $2 from my own so that nobody will be disappointed that he lost it. Some time went by and the kid who was stealing the money came quietly and gave the money back to me and told me he found it. Uh, As I was asking where he found it, I could see that he had not thought the whole plan of returning the money through, and so he pointed at some place I'm sure he made up at the moment, which was heartbreakingly cute. At the end of course, when his mom came to pick him up, I told her what had happened, not in front of the kid, and more like in the way that I'm not mad at him and that he was already showing morale and moral I guess that would be morals and regret when he returned it. I just simply wanted to report that she, so she could maybe have an eye on the origin of the problem. Maybe send him somewhere without his older brother so that he could do something on his own without the pressure and enforcement of stealing. And the next moment, his mom yelled in front of me and every other kid in the course, uh, and he immediately started crying and simply told everyone that he found it. That was shameful for the kid and for me because I reported him and to every other kid because a yelling older person is just simply annoying. I feel you, little gangster. Next time, I will be your partner in crime and also in the future when you decide to steal bigger things. That last that last bit is is so out of left field. I don't know if you're, if you're just being silly. Or if you really do uh, love stealing big things, I have the feeling you're just being silly. But thank you, thank you for that. What a great, uh, what a great little picture you painted there. This is from the Psych Ward Experiences survey. This is filled out by uh, BPD Bitch, and uh, she is uh, eighteen or nineteen. She doesn't identify as. Uh, any particular thing she writes, I'm either a lesbian with severe daddy issues and internalized homophobia or a bisexual with a heavy preference for women. Who knows? And ultimately, it doesn't, doesn't matter what the, what the label is. She was hospitalized because she had a nervous breakdown and almost jumped off a bridge. Describe your experience. Being a patient was horrible. 
The hospital had no beds, so I was held in a tiny gray room with the most uncomfortable chair I have ever sat in. The nurse asked if I needed anything, and I asked for water, and she came back with a turkey sandwich. I'm a vegetarian. And and she brought no water. I spent almost 18 hours asking for water and never got it. I saw five or six nurses, and they all spoke to me in such a condescending tone, almost like I was a baby or mentally underdeveloped. I was made to pull down my pants because I said I had a cut I'd cut myself on my thigh shortly before coming to the hospital, so they had to see the wound. But there was a male nurse in the room, and I said due to multiple sexual assaults, I didn't feel comfortable doing it with him in the room, and they ignored me. I was visibly uncomfortable, shaking, on the verge of tears, stuttering, and kept asking if he could leave before I did it. And one of the female nurses yawned, looked at her watch, and told me I had to hurry up. God, this is unfucking believable the hospitalization itself only lasted 24 hours thank god but it was traumatic i was put on lexapro and diagnosed with anxiety depression bpd and ptsd i guess in a way it was helpful since i got the diagnoses that explain why i am the way i am and referrals to support groups so i'm now working very hard to better myself the part that hasn't been helpful is the Lexapro. I've been on it for two months now and can honestly say I want to die more than I did when I was unmedicated. I've been having severe and debilitating panic attacks since I started taking it. When the psychiatrist from the hospital called me for a follow-up a little over a month after I was out, I told her how I felt the medication was making me worse, and she sighed and said, No, it's not. It's used to treat anxiety and depression and refused to change my meds or dosage. I'm losing more and more hope every day. It feels like I'm constantly taking one step forward and two steps back. Holy shit. Oh my God, I'm sending you some some love and, and good vibes and I hope you, I hope you, you, you hang in there. Um, God, fuck those people that... Why would you get into that profession if you don't care about people? I mean, maybe they did in the beginning and they're burned out now, but I can't imagine a psychiatrist keeping somebody on a medication when they're saying that they're feeling worse from it. That person should have their license taken away. Um, this is the same survey, and uh, this was filled out by a, a woman who calls herself Maria, and this is about somebody in her life who was hospitalized, and she writes, I used to work at an inpatient hospital on the psychosis floor for about four years. I have not been hospitalized, but I have, I have not been hospitalized, but I have had mental breakdowns about it happening. I know many people personally that have been hospitalized as well. One in particular was a roommate I had. She was hospitalized because she tried to jump into traffic during a manic episode. Working uh, at the hospital was very traumatic for me. The attitude of the staff was horrible. Some would joke about how patients would have been better off if they had succeeded in the suicide attempts. They would often play favorites with patients, and it was obvious. They would laugh about their lives in the office and then go right out and interact with them. Seeing that makes me in no way trust staff if I ever have to go to inpatient, which may happen as I have depression and anxiety and have almost had to be inpatient myself. My roommate uh, that 
uh, my roommate that was hospital was also a staff with me at the hospital. I think there's a typo in there somewhere. It was so fucked. We knew it was coming. She wasn't sleeping. Our employer would just let her work crazy schedules and hours. It's disgusting how much that employer let their staff hurt themselves. If I'm if I'm bumming some of you out, I, I you know I'm I don't want to apologize because this shit needs to be talked about. You know, this is I think a future frontier for us to look at with the the same uh, intensity and compassion that we are looking at uh, sexual assault survivors, um, racial violence. Um, it, it, there, there's there is so much work that needs to be done, and there should be. You know, when you're mocking somebody who is in the most vulnerable part of their life, there should be a legal consequence for that because to me that is every bit as harmful as, um, you know, a hate crime. All right. This is a shame and... Yeah, let's lighten things up with a shame and secret survey. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Jay Hawker. She uh, identifies as straight. She's in her 40s. She was raised in a stable and safe environment. Never been sexually abused. Not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused. My husband has suffered from PTSD and has in the past been emotionally unavailable, emotionally unfaithful. And for a period, I felt emotionally abusive towards me. Darkest thoughts. I've been suicidal. I've thought about the sympathy and attention I would get if my husband died. Darkest secrets. I left my husband and daughter for a year, moved across the country. I moved to a city where a person lived that I was obsessed with and basically was a stalker. I then became suicidal and have had to move in with my parents and go to, quote, mental rehab. Um, What are the sexual fantasies most powerful to you? I don't know about fantasies, but I have some dreams at night about men. Sometimes I know them. Sometimes they are celebrities that I've never met. These dreams are sometimes sexual, but always the man is completely and utterly smitten with me, thinks I am the most beautiful thing ever and cannot be away from me. Utter devotion. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'm sorry to people I've hurt, mostly to people that have hurt me to tell them they hurt me in a way that has damaged me forever, but I would never want to give them the power of knowing how they affected me, or they are close, too close to me, and I don't want to hurt their feelings by confronting them. Fucked up, I know. What, if anything, do you wish for? What it feels like to be normal, to have a normal relationship with food, to not be afraid of just about everything. To be able to leave the house without spending a couple of days procrastinating about it or mentally preparing myself for it. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, just my most trusted people and only because I know they have some of the same issues. I feel weird enough. I don't want everyone knowing just how weird I am. I cover well and most people don't know any of my issues. How do you feel after writing these things down? I might be crazier than I thought, but I am not as crazy as I was from 2009 to 2015. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? How do other anxious people deal? Question mark. That's a great question. 
That is a great question, and I think and I think there's a multitude of answers uh, to that because different things work for for different people. But I know mindfulness is definitely mindfulness and meditation are two things that definitely help people with uh, anxiety. So you might look into that. But thank you, thank you for filling that out. This is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Repressed Raging Redhead. And he writes, I've been playing StarCraft II since quarantine started. Uh, StarCraft II is a flashy, intense, and sweaty real-time strategy game on PC. Think a board game like Risk or Chess or Going to War and Civilization, but instead of politely waiting for each other's turn, you angrily throw units and board game pieces at each other while your opponent molests and pillages your economy with invisible units that you completely missed because you were too tunnel-visioned on watching two meaningless units fight each other on the other side of the map. It has casual options like the campaign or co-op, but I, being the intensely competitive try-hard that I am, went for the one-versus-one ranked ladder online. Playing other, sweaty, playing other sweaty nerds is my jam. There are three races. The Terrans, which are the humans that have tanks, nukes, and guns that shoot ammo. Zerg, the slimy Ridley Scott's alien bug race. And the shiny Protos with their lasers and energy blades. For the Protos, think the Predator movies. But if the Predators were dressed in gaudy golden armor, had no mouths, and spoke with the diction of a bad Shakespeare community theater. They have no mouths, but they can speak because psychic sci-fi energy. Of course, I, having grown up and sort of escaped Scientology, had to pick Protos. This game has been my single-minded obsession for the past four, five, six months. There are days where the tilt is almost unbearable. SC Community has adopted this term, which your guest Ben Feynman made you familiar with in a recent episode, for how assholey for how assholey players can be online. Uh, the community is incredibly supportive and rewarding. Not to mention all of your YouTube guides online. Those same YouTubers can usually be interacted with and viewed in their natural habitat on Twitch. I've made a couple of good friends, and I can't think of a more gratifying game to improve in, despite how frustrating it is. A couple of days ago, after about 2,000 matches online, I made it into Platinum League in StarCraft II. I felt like I was a nine-year-old champion at Christmas. I felt like I was nine years old at Christmas again. I'm still a noob and am not even a third of the way up the ladder to the highest league, but I love that I found something where I can push myself to be better and also having the gratification of things blowing up and other real people calling me a cheater when I kick their ass. I can't remember the last time I had that many feel-good chemicals flood my brain. Probably when I did half a tab of acid at Alien Stock slash Area 51 with my BFF. That is so awesome. Any comments to make the podcast better? Paul, we need, and by we, I mean me and my cat, to know if you tried those strawberry toaster strudels yet. Also, I hope you, uh, I didn't ruin unfrosted Pop-Tarts for you. You haven't talked about Pop-Tarts on the podcast, so of course it's my fault for making a joke about them months ago. 
that's what I get. I'm not allowed to have sense of humor because other people get hurt. Of course, everything is exactly as my cognitive distortions tell me is. There is no alternative, LOL. I hope you're still enjoying your chalky breakfast snack things. Don't listen to me. I have not been, uh, I've not tried the toaster strudels about, I don't know, maybe two months ago, I decided to try to cut sugar and white flour out of my diet. And for the most part, I've done it. And that's why I haven't been uh, eating or talking about Pop-Tarts. But I would like to to try those strudels uh, if and when I fall off the, the wagon. This is from the, uh, and thank you for that, by the way. What a, what a great uh, little vignette you, you painted. And boy, do I get the losing yourself in a, in a video game. I mean, it, this is a painful time to be awake and out of bed. This is from the uh, sexual abuse or violation of a young male by an older female survey. I don't think the name of that survey is long enough or specific enough. Um, This is a guy who calls himself, I thought I made peace with it. He identifies as straight and he's in his 30s. And he writes, I was first, and and this gets a, a, a little bit graphic. I was first sexually abused by an older distant relative when I was four-ish, and she would have been around eight or nine. I have a few vivid memories of her and her friend from the neighborhood asking me to strip naked so they could see me naked, which I did because they did it too. I was sexually abused by my sister from uh, at the age of five or six. My sister is eight years older than me. When I was five, I had an erection and was confused about it, so I asked my mom um, because I was five and didn't know why my penis was hard. My sister was there at the time, and she left the room laughing. A short time later, my sister would offer to babysit me, and while my parents were gone, she would invite me upstairs where she would be naked, lying on her bed face down. She would ask me to take off my pants and underwear and lay on her. As I would become aroused, she would reposition me to penetrate her. We would lay there uh, at times for an hour watching TV. This happened two to three times, but possibly more. Uh, Did you ever tell anyone? I never told anyone when I was a kid, but after that, I remember being highly sexual. I would play doctor with female cousins or neighborhood kids. I knew it wasn't normal. And I remember one time I was with a female cousin at my grandmother's house. We were naked together in the closet. I would have been about five and she was seven. My grandmother walked in on us playing in the closet. And I remember my grandmother being very upset with us. We didn't get punished, but we were in trouble and weren't allowed to be alone to play together after that. My sister told me not to tell. I told my now ex-wife about this after my sex addiction came to light when an anonymous person contacted her to tell her I had cheated on her. Initially, she seemed supportive, but she later used it as a way to control me during the last year of our marriage and during the divorce. I also told my therapist about it as I was trying to understand and process it. Remembering these things, what feelings come up? Uh, 
all of the above, sadness, anger, regret, sexual excitement, fondness, longing, shame, etc. I feel guilt is some of the sexual things I feel as though I initiated. I know intellectually that it wasn't the case, but I feel responsible for the incidents happening. Do you feel any damage was done? Uh, was it innocent and natural or somewhere in between? Somewhere in between. I thought I made peace with it, but I realized how hypersexual I was growing up. I feel as though my sex addiction is related to these incidents and why I associate sex with love. Man, thank you for that. That uh, that must have been difficult to go to go back into those memories. And it's one of the things that's so fucked up about having experienced sexual violation is uh, a lot of us will also recall the pleasure uh, of things because it's it's like our mind can be experiencing something completely negative while our body is experiencing pleasure from it. And then when we recall it, it's such a fucked up bouillabaisse of mixed emotions that then makes us feel guilty or like we wanted it or it was our fault. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself in sickness and in health. Uh, She writes, I recently married the best person I've ever known. In every room, he's the coolest person there. I can't believe I get to be his wife. We met in a recovery a few years ago. We are both sober heroin addicts. Anyway, We decided to camp for a few days for our honeymoon, but en route, we both got food poisoning. Bad. We quickly realized camping with nausea and explosive diarrhea wasn't a good idea, so we opted for an Airbnb instead, and and I'm sure the host loved that. Because of COVID, COVID, we were able to rent an unbelievable villa that we'd never uh, normally be able to afford. Um... Uh, for cheaper than a room at the Holiday Inn. As we laid curled up on the heated bathroom floor, taking turns vomiting in the toilet, we both couldn't stop smiling and giggling. There's no one else I'd rather be sick with. We never ended up going camping, just stayed in the villa for a few days, snuggling and watching bad TV. It was absolutely perfect. We both remember laying on bathroom floors dope sick and could have never imagined a life like we have now grateful for it all wow man that that is just life in a in a nutshell right there the beauty and the and the horror uh all rolled into one and and kudos to both of you on your sobriety and your uh, as they say attitude of gratitude um it's i heard somebody say one time i can't remember who it was but they said uh, the worst handicap you can be given is a bad attitude. And I couldn't agree, couldn't agree more because I've, I have lived life with a terrible attitude and I have lived life with a, uh, positive and accepting attitude. And the latter, uh, saved my life, saved my life and gave me a life that, uh, that I am able to, for the most part, enjoy. Uh, these days, I certainly have my struggles, but anyway, enough enough about me. Let's get to you. I, I, I hope you got something out of this episode. And if you're out there struggling, I say it every episode, but I mean it every time. You are not alone. And thanks for listening.
Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.